As we dig out from a Thanksgiving week snowstorm in the Rocky Mountains, this is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities, keeping warm this week in the shadow of Red Rocks. We're changing it up this week with a conversation with another podcast that's all about the outdoors. We'll talk to host Sarah Shimazaki about her show, Outside Voices, and why it's so important to elevate everyone's stories about their connection to nature. But first, we've got a quick news update. The Interior Department is ignoring a judge's order that restored the 2015 plan to protect the sage-grouse from the impacts of oil and gas leasing. We talked about that ruling last month here with Nada Culver from the Audubon Society. Even though those old protections are now supposed to be in place, more than 100,000 acres of sage-grouse habitat are still available for leasing right now in Wyoming, Utah, and Colorado, and the Bureau of Land Management is planning to auction off more leases in Wyoming grouse habitat next month. As Nada put it this week in an interview with CQ Roll Call, concerning doesn't even begin to convey where we are, damn the torpedoes, and the sage-grouse. Speaking of the Bureau of Land Management, acting head William Perry Pendley wrote an op-ed in the Las Vegas Review-Journal saying that BLM law enforcement agents would show, quote, deference to local sheriffs. Now, we haven't talked about extremism much on this podcast, but back before this podcast existed, the Center for Western Priorities did a lot of work laying out the connections between a handful of politicians in the West and extremists like Cliven and Ammon Bundy. One of the core tenets of these extremists is this bizarre notion that local sheriffs are the ultimate law enforcement authority and that federal agents are subservient to them. The extremists call these folks constitutional sheriffs, which is funny because the word sheriff isn't even mentioned once in the Constitution. William Perry Pendley is, of course, of this same overall world. He has previously called for the disposal of national public lands. We've talked about that a lot here. But for Pendley to give such a full-throated endorsement to militia groups, to sovereign citizen conspiracies and the like, that's taking things to a new level. The public lands extremists had been pretty quiet over the last couple of years after the takeover of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge and the trials that resulted in Ammon Bundy's acquittal, but a number of other convictions. It is now clear that these folks are back and they are feeling emboldened because people like William Perry Pendley are giving them the green light from the highest levels of government. One of the Malheur militants, Ken Mendenbach, announced this week that he is running for Congress in Oregon to represent the district that includes the wildlife refuge he tried to take over. Ammon Bundy this month was making rumblings about another standoff, this time in Idaho, but he backed down. I don't know where all of this goes next. It's something that we're going to be keeping a very close eye on in 2020. But having William Perry Pendley give credence to their bizarre constitutional interpretations is, at the very least, a troubling sign of things to come. Our guest this week is the host and producer of the Outside Voices podcast, a new show that's all about celebrating and sharing the stories of people who don't always see themselves reflected in the usual narratives about the great outdoors. Sarah Shibazaki is a public lands advocate and storyteller based in Oakland, California. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Aaron. So I'm glad we finally got you here. We've been going back and forth here for a couple months trying to get schedules lined (laughs) up, but I'm I'm Uh so glad it worked. Take me back now several months then. What was the impetus for the podcast? Where did this idea come from? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, there's that saying that if you're not seeing something out in the world, then you should create it yourself. So, you know, really, uh, I grew up hiking, I grew up gardening, I grew up spending my time outside, but I never really considered myself outdoorsy because in, uh, you know, in the media, in gear catalogs, just in sort of like the mainstream depiction of who's an outdoorsy person, who's, you know, an environmentalist, I didn't really see myself reflected in those images. Um, I mostly saw, I really honestly mostly saw white folks. I saw a lot of male identified folks. I saw, I thought that to be an outdoorsy person, you know, I had to scale a mountain and wear really expensive gear. I had to wear flannel and <laughs> um, all these things. And so uh, for the longest time, I, I didn't consider myself an outdoorsy person. I didn't really think that that's somewhere where I belonged. And so then over, over really the last few years, I've met other folks who look like me, other people of color, um, people really just reclaiming their space in the outdoors and saying like, hey, we we belong here. And also our stories aren't new. Like we've we're all as human beings connected to nature and our stories deserve to be told. And so I was starting to see a lot of that happening on Instagram. A lot of platforms started cropping up, you know, organizations centered around, um, you know, Latino voices in the outdoors, black experiences in the outdoors. And so we started thinking about what, you know, there. There isn't really like a dedicated podcast for this um, ju just yet. And there's some podcast episodes here and there sprinkled in other podcasts where they talk about diversity in the outdoors. But there really wasn't just like a dedicated platform for people who consider themselves underrepresented in the outdoors to just share their stories simply because they deserve to be told. And so we thought, OK, like what can we do to make this happen? So that's where you came from. Your four episodes in right now. Give us just a, an overview of the kinds of stories that you've you've told so far, and and what you're looking for. What what you think makes for a good episode of Outside Voices? Mm. Yeah, so we've launched four episodes thus far, as you said. We're kind of on a monthly schedule right now, and really, I think the thesis, I guess you could say, for the podcast that I've. Um, sort of landed on and have been checking for for future stories is just really our relationships to nature that have just always been there and that trace back to our earliest ancestors. So it's actually not necessarily, even though there are really amazing um, athletes of color out there scaling mountains and really breaking records and doing amazing things in uh, different recreational sports. It's not necessarily centered around stories like that, um, although that can be included as well. It's sort of just going back to, um, you know, our first episode, we talked about um, it featured around a Latina surfer, and she talks a lot about how her mom on her Latina side of the family really influenced her connection to nature because she grounded, you know, tamales and or grounded the tortillas for for um, making tacos in their house and just all these ways that 
her mom brought the outdoors into the kitchen and also the ways that her grandmother was really very sustainable in the ways that she saved water and, you know, when California was in a drought, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to the clip later, but um, just the ways that just to be economical and to be resourceful, she was just inherently very much an environmentalist, though she might not think of herself as one. Um, we also actually did a whole episode on Japanese incarceration during World War II, and that took us to Manzanar, which is one of the the concentration camps that Japanese were sent to during World War II. And really, I wanted the focus there to be on the gardens that they planted at Manzanar and other concentration camps too. So really just um, the ways in which they connected to nature and it was really a way of reasserting their culture. Um, we also have an episode, I really love this conference called PGM1. It's a conference for people of color or people of the global majority, which is a term that we like to use that's more empowering for folks who don't like using the word minority to describe ourselves, because the reality is that people of the global majority, we do make up the majority of people if you look at, you know, just the globe as opposed to the country. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so when we were at, PGM one this past year, I recorded some just really amazing clips and music and interviews that was really all about healing our relationship to the earth and to ourselves and with each other. And our latest episode featured a, a climber outdoor leader named Brittany Levitt. And she talks a lot about how she finds her own black joy in nature. She talks about her experience being a transracial adoptee, which means someone who was adopted by parents that are a different race than she was. And she also talks about just navigating through grief and using being able to heal in nature, really. So just the healing power of being in nature, being outside. So... That's well, let, what we've let, done so far. Yeah. Let, let's go ahead and start there. Well, let, let's start with with Brittany's episode because I think uh, this is interesting when when she talks about something we have heard uh, many times. Black people don't swim. This notion that that black communities are not around water, and there are obviously historic racial prejudice reasons for. Uh, for that notion to exist, but I mm -hmm. think it, it's really interesting that that's something that that she chose to talk about. So let, let's just stop for a minute and and listen to to Brittany here. As Black people, nature is within us. From the water, we have a deep connection with the water, but society has put, and from historical records, has put this notion of fear of water to us, but water is something that we have used to heal and to connect. And so this whole, the idea that black people don't swim dates back from generations, from storytelling, from, you know, family experiences to just history. But we've always been connected to the water. Um, we've always been connected to the trees. Now I talk a lot about the history. Uh, I think a key thing is to for people to realize that history and nature go hand in hand. and. Um, being able to be part of a, a group, that, that's our mission, is to just celebrate and inspire what we do in the outdoors. 
We have always been connected to the stars, to the leaves, to the herbs, to the dirt, from, you know, walks of life. We are, we've been hikers and bikers, everyone from Harriet Tubman to Benjamin Baker to Matthew Henson. It's not something that is, quote unquote, a white person thing, because more than likely, we probably did it first, but weren't recognized for it. So, Sarah, is that is that what when we hear people talk about reclaiming history? Is that what Brittany's getting at there? Mm, yeah, definitely. Because I think the narrative, you know, when people do start to um, say things like, yeah, you know, we do need to diversify the outdoors and we need to diversify the conservation movement. There's sort of this um, this phrase that gets attached to that, which is like, it's because they're not they don't care about public lands. It's because they're not outside, you know, black people don't camp or people of color don't like hiking. I think that there's, there's, uh, you know, and, and like you said, and as Brittany's saying, there are, there are very real, um, reasons, historical reasons why that is so that those folks have been excluded and erased from those conversations and those kinds of activities. Um, you know, just take swimming, for example, you know, just the fact that during Jim Crow, um, swimming, uh, black people weren't allowed to go into swimming pools. Right. And so they never learned to, to swim. Um, and but then if you go way, way back and, um, you know, to our ancestors and uh, really actually this shows up in um, our first episode because Olivia, the surfer, she talks about the history of surfer of, of surfing. Sorry. She talks about the history of, of surfing and she sort of goes into different places around the world where indigenous communities were connected to water. And she talks about how um, they sort of had like the beginnings of surfing um, in West Africa, actually. And that that is a story that when she shares it with her students, which is um, her students are mostly youth of color, but especially her black students, she just sees them light up and and she's able to like communicate to them. Yeah, like your ancestors were swimming, they were surfing, they had really deep knowledge about the tides and just the the way that they were in tune with the ocean. And that is like a really powerful thing that she's able to, um, it's a story that she's able to share with her students to say, like, we've been outside, you know, it's, this is, this is not just about you um, reclaiming your relationship to nature, but reclaiming that story and that history. Well, let's listen to something else from from that clip with with Olivia as well. And I love this story because it so makes the point that conservation as something that white communities love to point to of look how well we're doing, look what we're doing here. And it's something very conscious and uh, virtue signaling, if you'd like to to use that that word. And <laughs> And Olivia's point here is that in so many communities of color, conservation is just part of the ethos and the ethic. And she she tells this this wonderful story about uh, about her, her grandma. And so, uh, take a listen. I remember there was an instance where there was a drought in California, and my grandma was watching the news, and they were saying there's a drought, and everyone needs to do better at um, lowering the amount of water that they use in their house. And my grandma started laughing. And I said, Grandma, why are you laughing? She goes, because I've been conserving water in my house for 50 years. <laughs> she was telling me that with her laundry, she takes the hose out and she puts the gray water into a bucket 
and she takes that water from the laundry. She makes her own soap. She makes her own biodegradable soap because it's more economically feasible than buying laundry detergent at the store. And she uses the same container to make the soap. She makes sure that the soap is safe for all her plants to grow. So she washes her clothes in laundry, puts the gray water into a bucket, takes the bucket, puts it out into her garden and uses the same water that she washes her clothes with out in the garden. She says she's been doing that since she moved to California. I said, Grandma, then you're amazing. Like, this is amazing that you've been doing this for this long. She goes, yeah, it's time everyone starts listening to me and catches up. <laughs> all right. So we're all going to listen to Olivia's grandmother. And I think probably all of our grandmothers, because whether you grew up in a, a water drought situation or your grandmother grew up cooking, cooking meals on the cheap in the Depression, there are so many things that I, I think we may have lost track of over the years that, that we can learn from. And this you know, notion of rediscovering or discovering conservation is, is really a sense that, or a lesson that we've forgotten about history. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's been very hyper capitalized or it's just the green movement is actually just now perhaps about like buying, buying things, um, you know, so for example, right. not, not consuming you, things is conservation too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. But I think there's this whole like um, kind of sustainable movement, you know, you buy this toothbrush instead of this one and, you know, make sure that you buy these like reusable bags and reusable Tupperwares and whatnot. And, um, and I think that then exactly like I think about my grandma and I think about my mom and just growing up and opening the fridge and not knowing like which, what holds what because she reused so many of, you know, like a peanut butter jar is carrying um, like orange juice or, or something that she made. She fresh, fresh squeezed the orange juice into this like reused peanut butter jar. And, um, you know, you open like a thing, a tub of butter, but it's actually not butter. Right. And she used it for something else. And so there are just all these ways that um that my mom and my grandma and exactly as you're saying, other people's grandmas has just been doing that. Like they've been sustainable because it's a matter of just like being resourceful and also being economical and using what you already have. So I think that it's just rather than saying like to be sustainable, you have to buy these things and you have to do it this way. It's like, well, how are they doing it before? Right. Like way, way back. Cause there's knowledge there that we've forgotten. All right, sticking with the grandmother's theme, I, I want to jump to episode three, which is about gardening inside American concentration camps and detention centers during World War II. And you started that episode on a, on a personal note, talking about your own heritage as an American of, of Japanese descent, uh, although your, your extended family moved to the U.S. after after World War II by a couple decades, but you still mm -hmm. felt a, a connection with, with the stories in that episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's just that reminder that this, this happened not long, not that long ago. And that if I did live here 
in America during that time. This very well could have been my story. It's also, there's so many parallels with what's happening today down at the border. And so it's just, that it's a connection that I have as a person with Japanese ancestry, but it's also a story that I think we all should be remembering and listening to so that it doesn't happen again. All right, let's t- take a listen. Uh, who is this uh, that we're going to be hearing from uh, in this clip? This is Sue. Yeah, so this is actually Sue Kunitomi. So she is actually a pretty prominent figure, and we talk about her a little bit more in the episode, but she's talking about the gardens at Manzanar. She was incarcerated there at Manzanar, but then several decades later, she helped to found the Manzanar Committee, which is a group of activists who wanted to make sure to preserve this history and pass on what happened to um, to everyone else in the U.S. because the government was sort of sh- uh, shushing what had happened during World War II to the Japanese. All right, let's take a listen. So, And the people also built gardens in front of their unit, or they planted uh, flowers, they had vegetable gardens, and it was a real attempt to beautify their surroundings, and I think it really helped the morale of the people. Something as seemingly simple as a garden had the ability to uplift spirits and forge some semblance of home amidst prison-like conditions. These tangible symbols of hope and resilience helped the Japanese survive incarceration. But perhaps more than anything, beyond providing aesthetics in a bleak landscape, a way to pass the time, and shade in a hot desert, the essence of the Japanese gardens at Manzanar was that of cultural identity. The gardens were a way for imprisoned Japanese, many of whom were former landscapers and farmers, to reclaim their power, space, and freedom. For many, it was an act of resistance and defiance, literally taking up space and rejecting their situation as it was. A way to heal, honor their traditions, and modestly but boldly assert their cultural identity in spite of persecution and forced Americanization. It was their way of saying, we did this, and this is who we are. So I love that clip because it so sets up the the last bit we have to talk about, which is uh, the, the PGM-1 episode and indigenous people, obviously the original American conservationists whose identities and stories have been so consistently uh, erased or downplayed or ignored. And that's something obviously we've talked a whole lot about on this podcast, particularly as it it pertains to say coal mining and the, the, the nuclear legacy on the Navajo nation. What, what did you learn when you went to, to PGM one uh, what did you take out of out, out of that that experience? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I took a lot out of it, really. <laughs> uh, and I think that just in relation to this clip, 
I think that when we think about any time we're talking about land conservation, we're talking about public lands, any time that we're really just talking about our relationship to the earth, we need to be including and not just including, but centering and amplifying and making sure that indigenous voices are just really the ones that are at the center of the conversation. It's it's not just about like, oh yeah, we'll bring them in the room. Sure. It's no, like these are the folks who have, they have the a connection to the land that is still there that has not been severed to this land despite uh, centuries of gen- genocide and colonization. Like they're still here today and there's so much wisdom that we should learn from and listen from. And in order to get, uh, in order to cultivate a better relationship to the land, which is something all of us need to do to help to um, make sure that we can sustain our, uh, our life on this land, I think that it's all about centering indigenous voices in that journey. It's they don't exist separate from each other. Did that in, am I hearing that in, inclusion is not enough in and of itself? That it, there has to be more than just that. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Because inclusion, and I'm sure you know this, <laughs> but um, I think a lot of folks talk about inclusion, but they're not actually talking about sharing power and um, sharing like whose voices are centered. It's just kind of like, yeah, let's bring them in the room. Let's put mm-hmm. them at the table. But do they actually have power to make decisions that for the last couple centuries have been made by white folks? All right. Set this, uh, this clip up. Who are we uh, going to hear from? Yeah, so this is um, Ajani Yepa. She is she works for um, Utah Dene Bekeya. So the folks who have been very prominent on the movement to protect bears' ears. All right, let's take a listen to Ajani. For us as Indigenous people, we are intrinsically tied to the land. So. Our cultures and our people, our languages, our songs and ceremonies have all evolved with the different landscapes that we're related to. And because of that, as we enter into the work of environmental justice or land protection or, you know, advocating for quote unquote public lands, it inherently carries with that a value of protecting and advocating for the culture of your people and um, for the people from those lands as well, not just the lands themselves. They are not in isolation from us as humans, and we are not in isolation from our mother. So I love that, especially as the host of a public lands podcast, of a reminder, she puts quote-unquote public lands uh, in there as, as a reminder that even the notion of public lands is a political construct that we're operating from here in this country uh, as a result of colonization and our current uh, political system. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, indigenous lands predate public lands. And this whole notion of public is, is only one that we have created over the last several hundred years. What what do you think the listeners of this podcast, who obviously were a pretty policy-focused podcast, what do they need to take away from stories like Ajani's? Mm. Yeah, I think that anytime there is 
a decision to be made anytime there's like a focus group or you need people to speak on an issue, going back to what we were talking about, that inclusion is not enough. It's, it, it can't be that it's just, you know, the policymakers who perhaps are non-Indigenous primarily are in a room making big decisions and brainstorming how a campaign is going to go, how they're going to move forward on a policy decision. And then they say, oh, and we should make sure, right, that we include Indigenous voices and um, sort of like check a box to make sure that that's sort of that that happens and that that strengthens their argument because they have the support of the Indigenous communities. It should rather be that they're listening to um, Indigenous leaders of those communities who have been there and are speaking out um, about what's happening in their on their lands in their community and really just like taking their lead um, and just seeing like if there is like first step if there is a role for these um, for folks to to play and taking taking the direction from indigenous folks to um, to decide for themselves what's best for um, what's happening on their lands. It's about who who the leaders truly are. I, I think. Yeah, and yeah, I think that definitely. that's something we all need to need to focus on. Sarah, what other stories are you looking to tell down the road? Now that you you're four episodes in, I, you've kind of got a groove going. What are you What are you looking to tell? Who are you looking to hear from? Yeah, so we we do have a couple episodes currently in production. Um, I really just it's really about just making sure that we're um, capturing a lot of different voices. There's just so much. There's so many things to unpack just within this thesis of like just our relationship to nature that can go so many ways. Um, we're going to have an episode soon on someone who's very vocal about disability and the outdoors. And we're also going to talk about, um, we're also going to talk more about this indigenous connection and how it relates to quote unquote, yeah, public lands. Um, because I think that we had Ajani speak in this episode and it was really, it was really a wonderful interview I had with her, but I really want to dedicate a full episode to, um, indigenous voices. So that's something that I'm really looking forward to. And, um, yeah, I think also so at the same time in the new year, we actually want to have more episodes more often. So right now we're doing monthly and the, they're pretty like heavily produced episodes that go out every month where I interview someone and then we sort of, you know, cut and paste it into this story and have narration and all of that. But um, I also want to just like have conversations with people much like we're having right now um, and that have a maybe lighter touch on the production end. So I think we're going to we're going to bump up to biweekly and have, you know, Two episodes come out a month, one that's very much along the lines of these last four we've had where it's very narration, storytelling based, and then having um, another episode go out, which is just a conversation with someone. Well, that's a whole lot to look forward to then in 2020. That's wonderful. (laughs) All right. Sarah Shimazaki is the host and producer of the Outside Voices podcast. You can find it in your favorite podcast directory. We've got a link to the show notes here. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing some of the wonderful audio you've gotten so far. And I, for one, very much look forward to seeing what you bring us down the road. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and for amplifying these voices and everything we're trying to do here. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. This week in Western history is off early for the Thanksgiving holiday. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. I am sure that Sarah would appreciate it if you did the same for Outside Voices. Feel free to drop us an email, podcast at westernpriorities.org, or find me on Twitter. I am A. Weiss. If you're on the road this holiday weekend, have a safe drive. Go enjoy some of our back episodes as long as you're in the car today. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.